If you would, please remain standing with me and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 22. Our reading as well as the content of our sermon this morning will be verses 23 through chapter 23, verse 11. And just a reminder of the context here, this is where Paul is making his defense in Jerusalem before the Jews, and he just got done making the statement that God had sent him to the Gentiles, which stirred up an uproar among the Jews. We pick up in verse 23 of chapter 22. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust in the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. But when they stretched him out with throngs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered that the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystander said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. That's the offense of Paul's defense that we'll look at this morning. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer once again. Lord God, I ask for your blessing on this hour together with your people, for your word to be declared by the power of your spirit through me to the hearts of your people. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth and bring to life any who are outside of Christ for you the sake of your glory. Amen. 
if there is no resurrection from the dead, and not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is vain, said the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. And that, my friends, is because the whole truth claim of Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of the Messiah, the Christ. And as you, beloved, proclaim Christ in this culture, you, like Paul, are on trial for the hope and resurrection. If you notice in verse 6 of chapter 23, Paul says, I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. See, the hope of Paul's resurrection, the hope of our resurrection, is in Christ's resurrection because his resurrection guarantees ours. That's why if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, we are the most foolish people in the world to be here this morning. Now, with regard to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, declaring the gospel, sharing the gospel, if you will, um, in our culture, um, that can be very fearful, especially in a culture like ours. Can I get a witness? It can be rather frightening because there are those out there who they refuse to reason. Many refuse to listen. I experience this all the time. To the truth of Jesus, who is the Christ, Son of the living God, the resurrection and the life, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, said Jesus, the resurrection and the life. But let me assure you of this, beloved. Jesus assures you this morning, just as he assured the Apostle Paul right here, take courage. Don't give up. Keep testifying about me. Keep testifying. Fear not. I am with you. I will bless your witness even to the end of the to the end of the age as he said when he gave the great commission to the disciples. That's a brief introduction of encouragement is we now proceed um, into the text. Now remember, um, the, third missionary of, the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul has ended his desire to enter into Jerusalem with an offering gathered from the churches in Macedonia and Achaia um, has come. No sooner does he arrive in Jerusalem, remember, where James and the elders, leaders in the church in Jerusalem, um, voice their plan um, to squelch all of the accusations laid against the Apostle Paul. There were circulating rumors that, that he teaches all Jewish Christians to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor walk according to the custom of Moses. We read that in chapter 21, verse 21. So they propose a plan. 
They proposed this plan that his going into the temple, that is Paul's going into the temple and funding the expenses of four young men who are under a Nazarite vow, the, the funding of the vows was to actually pay for a sacrifice at the end of those vows in the temple there in Jerusalem. They thought that that would appease the anger of the Jewish people when they see Paul do this, but it backfires. A riot breaks out. Now, our last study ended with the apostle Paul narrowly escaping being beaten to death by Jews in that temple. So as they were seeking to kill him, the Gentiles intervened. That is, Roman soldiers. They put chains on him. He's under protective custody. Guess what? That fulfilled the prophecy by Agabus, one named Agabus, back in chapter 21, verse 11. Remember when he took the belt of Paul and he bound his hands and his feet? And he says, thus says the Lord, the man who owns this belt, if he goes to Jerusalem, he will be bound by the Jews and delivered over to Gentiles. Prophecy fulfilled. Here he is. In chapter 21 and verse 39... Um, he asked permission of the Roman tribune to speak to the very people who just tried to kill him. So he's given the opportunity to uh, make a defense. And that, my friends, is a defense to vindicate his Jewish credentials. Now remember, when we just read, it says Paul's a Roman. No, he, he's a Roman citizen indeed, but he was Jewish to the bone, ethnically speaking. Okay, So... The accusation laid against him in the temple is that, Paul, you're not a true Israelite. You've given up your Jewishness, Paul. He was an ethnic Jew indeed. The accusation was that by preaching this Christ and denying the Mosaic law, you're no longer a Jew. That's the accusation. And, and that's what we're going to follow. We're going to trail this throughout our text this morning. So he, he's given an opportunity to speak. And back in chapter 22 and verse 1, notice, out of respect, he begins by saying, brothers and fathers, to the men who just tried to kill him. Now, we remember what Peter said back in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. Always be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you, but yet do it with what? Gentleness and respect. Now, Paul knows very well what, what he's doing here. And he does not go out of his way to cause an offense. Look. If you just preach the gospel, the gospel, the whole counsel of God is, a, is an offense in and of itself. Amen? So there can be a fine line between being purposely provocative and just faithful, ever faithful to the whole counsel of God. You see, irritating Christians, those irritants who love to provoke 
the church. They go from church to church, and they get kicked out of this church because they love to be purposely provocative. They have one, one line or one argument. They love to banter. That's the drum they beat, and they go in and out of churches, and they cause trouble. They lack knowledge. They lack wisdom. They're incredibly irritating, very embarrassing. That's being purposely provocative. Paul was not purposely provocative. He was faithful to the whole counsel of God. That will get you into trouble in and of itself. Amen. So here, Paul, ever so faithful, okay, whatever needs to be said, he will say it, regardless of the circumstances, okay? But that is without being purposely provocative. So here he begins his defense by saying, brothers and fathers, Respect. They they, they wanted him dead, and here he is. So he begins with, notice, brothers and fathers, I am a Jew, born in a respected city. This is chapter 22, verse 3. I was brought up in Jerusalem, educated under one of the greatest Jewish teachers of the day, Gamaliel. Okay, now remember, he's building his defense, and he's saying, look, I am one of you. I am one of you, brothers, fathers. I'm as Jew as Jew can be. And as a matter of fact, I was a strict adherent to the law. As a matter of fact, brothers and fathers, I persecuted this way. The way, remember, in the early church, or here in in the New Testament, referred to the church of Jesus Christ, the way. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. I persecuted this way. And let me tell you this. I didn't persecute with empty threats. I persecuted with imprisonment and death. That's how zealous I was. And then in verses 5, 9, and 12 through 16, he goes on to mention eyewitnesses to prove his defense. The fact that he hated this way. You see this? Remarkable, masterful, a masterful defense. He says, look, I know the law forward and backward. Zealous I was to the core, and no one here, brothers and fathers, can outdo what I did with regard to zeal. I'm one of you. He then transitions (laughs) from what would have been unoffensive up to this point to what would have caused great suspicion. The Lord Jesus Christ revealed himself to me on the road to Damascus, en route, papers in hand, to arrest those of the way to put both men and women in prison. Equal opportunity persecutor I was. They listen intently until he recites the words of the risen Messiah. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22, notice. Now up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, which means put him to death. It's a Hebraic way of saying kill him. For he should not be allowed to live. So the Lord's prediction in chapter 22 and verse 18 during his speech, it's true again, when Jesus said, 
about 20 years prior to this, make haste, get up out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. They didn't accept it then, they don't accept it here. The Jews, my friends, didn't receive Christ's own testimony about himself. Do you remember in Luke 4, when Jesus entered into his hometown of Nazareth. He goes in, he's in the synagogue, he opens up the scroll, and he opens it to the book of the prophet Isaiah. And he says this, he reads the text. You can keep your finger in Acts if you want to turn there. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, stood up to read. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book. He gave it to the attendant. He sat down. He said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay, now in verse 22, so far, so good. All were speaking well of him. And wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips, and they were saying, is this not, wait a minute, is this not Joseph's son? You know, the carpenter from Nazareth? Now, he went on to say this. Jesus continues. He said, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we hear... Or whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown, but I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, that is a Gentile to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in, the, in Israel in that time, in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they, they got up and drove him out, out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill which their city had, on which their city had been built in order to throw him off a cliff. Notice, he said, Elijah, he was sent to widows, not in Israel, but to a Gentile. Elisha, he was sent to lepers, but not to those in Israel. None of them were cleansed, but only Gentiles. And they're up in arms. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. So what do we see here between Jesus and Paul? A like-for-like experience. They wanted Jesus dead, now they want Paul dead. And that is without being purposely provocative, just declaring the whole counsel of God. A great offense. So in response to Paul's defense, saying he should not be allowed to live, parallels that of our Lord Jesus Christ when he went to Nazareth, right there in Luke 4. Why? Because the term Gentile was like a match to gasoline. The Jews hated 
Gentiles. That was a word that stopped their ears. They're infuriated. Paul, you're not a Jew. You're not an Israelite. When he says, the Messiah sent me to the Gentiles. So to even speak of God blessing Gentiles is enough for these Jews to want to kill Paul, just as they did his Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, remember this. Paul's ministry, his entire ministry was Christ-centered. Amen? Christ-centered. And a Christ-centered ministry sets forth who a true Jew is and is not. His ministry declares who a true Jew is and who a true Jew is not. In Galatians 6, for instance, he refers to the, the church of Jesus Christ as the what? As the Israel of? As the Israel of? God. The church of Jesus Christ is the Israel of God because she is rooted in the true Israel of God, Jesus the Christ. You are the Israel of God. Did you know that? You're the Israel of God, says the scripture. In Romans 2, Paul declares, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, ethnically, but inwardly. Now, I say this, and I bring out this point of theological truth, because most American evangelicals in our day, when they hear the word Jew, they only hear it in terms of ethnicity and not eternity. That is, by way of the salvific work of God through his son, the true Israelite of God, Jesus the Christ. Now, I believe that's the effect of much dispensational teaching in America over the last 100 plus years, or I wouldn't even call it dispensational, I would call it hyper-dispensational teaching, so that when a, an American evangelical hears Jew, they only think of that term in ethnic terms rather than salvific terms in and through Jesus Christ alone. This was Paul's ministry, Christ-centered Ministry. Scripture is clear. Those who truly hope in Israel's Messiah and his resurrection from the dead can truly claim Jewishness. That is, they can truly claim an Israelite standing before God, meaning you, beloved, are the apple of his eye. Because there's only one who's ever been true to the covenants of God, and it's Jesus, the true Israel of God. Amen? Well, wait a minute. You're saying, is this replacement theology? No, this is fulfillment theology, just in case you're wondering, okay? So the point is, they're accusing Paul of not being a true Israelite. He said, I preach God's true Israel. I preach him and the resurrection from the dead. If you're not in him, you're outside the covenant promises of God. Regardless of your ethnicity, you're not a Jew unless you're in him, the Christ. Amen? Can I get a witness to this? Amen. amen. Just say amen. Amen. You got to trust in the true Israel of God to be a true Israelite. It's Christ. That's what they're accusing Paul of. You're not an Israelite. You're not Jewish. He says, here's my defense. This is what I used to be. This is what I am now, new creature in Christ. 
So point of application, notice something. God has taken this man, a hardworking, zealous persecutor of the way, persecutor of Jesus Christ, transforms his life. But do you notice, once God transforms him, he doesn't strip from him his work ethic or his zeal, does he? Is he any less zealous as a true Israelite than when he was just an ethnic Israelite? No. God, the Holy Spirit, rechannels all of this energy, all of this zealousness for the glory of Christ. And once again, what does a spirit-led, spirit-empowered church look like when she gathers together? What's her primary focus? To say, wow, that's a spirit-filled church. What does she do? She preaches Christ. Jesus said, I will send the Holy Spirit and he will testify about me. The only one faithful ever to the covenant promises of God. And yet, what did he suffer? The covenant curses of God in our place. Condemned, he stood. Gospel truth. A little theology for us this morning. Amen? See, Paul was wired like this, and for many years now, God uses it for his glory as he proclaims Jesus Christ, son of the living God. Application, point of application, question. How is your DNA, that is, how is it that God has wired you being used for God's glory? Now, you may not be as zealous as the Apostle Paul, but beloved, may we never be guilty of dead, calm indifference. Amen? God's wired you a particular way. Pray, Lord, use me the way you form me. I'm not as zealous as this guy or that gal, but use me for your glory, I pray. And I guarantee you he will. Amen? Okay, now verse 23. Okay, first, the, the thought, okay, to a Jew, the thought that a Gentile could be saved without becoming a Jewish proselyte and that you're telling me that faith in Christ grants them equal ground with us, Jews, that's blasphemy in their mind. Okay, you, you get the picture? So notice, when he said this, God has sent me, Jesus, the Messiah, revealed himself to me and sent me to the Gentiles. They were crying out, throwing off their cloaks, tossing dust in the air, which are highly symbolic gestures, by the way. This is an expression of remorse and revolt at blasphemy. To them, Paul just blasphemed. And by the way, taking off their jackets... What do you do when you take off your jacket when someone blasphemes? You pick up stones to stone the blasphemer. Yeah? That's what they want to do. So with pandemonium breaking out, again, what a ministry this brother has, huh? Everywhere he goes, there's pandemonium. Just preach the truth. I, I, don't, I don't need to be purposely provocative. I'm just preaching the truth, and trouble will find me. Notice, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging. 
so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. So remember, having spoken to this crowd in the Hebrew dialect, which would have been Aramaic, the language of the people of the day, um, this, this commander of the Roman army really had no idea what, what Paul was saying, so he's confused. He brings him back inside. They have no Miranda rights. They have no Miranda rights. You have the right to remain silent, right? You can you know, go to the court of law and all this. No, it says we're going to beat you first, and then we'll ask questions later. That's the way they did it. So they bring him inside. Quickest way to, to a confession was to tie a man to a pole and, and either beat him or, in this case, scourge him. And then ask questions. And this scourging, friends, this, this is the, the flagellum. This is that fearful instrument of, of torture made up of leather tongs at the end of which were weighted with bone or metal to lash the back and shred the skin. This is what they did to Jesus. Paul's never experienced this. Not scourging. We understand in 2 Corinthians, we read five times, I received lashes from the Jews, which were much different from scourging, by the way. And three times, the Romans had beaten him with rods. That was a bundle of sticks gathered together, and you'd lash the guy with a bundle of sticks on his back, wail on him, but he had never experienced the flagellum. Jesus did. It tore the flesh. It would tear the muscles, and if it didn't kill you, it likely crippled you. So, as he's stretched out, notice, he's being stretched out, calm as can be. Verse 25, you know, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, um, question, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? So he's cool, he's calm, he's non-confrontational. He doesn't say, you can't do this. He simply asks a question that they will know the answer to. Is it lawful to, to, to scourge a Roman citizen? It was against the law to scourge a Roman citizen uncondemned. As a matter of fact, if you scourged an uncondemned Roman citizen, guess what happens to the one who scourged you? Death. Verse 26. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, what are you about to do? This man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? Uh, he said, yes. The commander answered, uh, uh, um, I, I, I acquired this citizenship um, of the Roman Empire with a large sum of money. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean this. Roman citizenship was never up for sale. You couldn't buy it. You couldn't purchase it. But it was oftentimes obtained by way of bribery of certain bureaucrats. Paul said, verse 28. So I don't know if he's saying, you know, what did it cost? What did it cost you? It cost me this much. What did it cost you? Notice he answers, um, I was actually born a citizen. This, this guy, he is a master, isn't he? That, that is, citizenship came by, by way of either right or reward. So if you had a prominent status, citizen, 
um, if you were recognized as productive with regard to the state, that is the Roman Empire, you would be given oftentimes Roman citizenship. So likely, because he was born a Roman citizen, um, Paul's father and or grandfather um, were likely serving the Roman Empire very well, received Roman citizenship, therefore he was born a citizen. Verse 29, which was a superior citizenship, of course. So here then in verse 29, therefore those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. You think? (laughs) And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because, because he had put him in chains even. But by God's providence, those chains served as what? protection from the Jews. He was in protective custody, so he was pulled away from those who were trying to kill him. God's providence on display. So Paul, by you know, raising, pulling out his citizenship card, I don't know what they had. I don't know if they actually carried these things. I did some research, and I found someone who carried a bronze plaque around. I have no idea what they had. But regardless if he carried anything or not, you know, a little passport of some kind. It's not likely, but if he did, great. If he didn't, um, they could easily find out if he was. And if you weren't, but you claimed to be a citizen of Rome, guess what happened? You're dead. You're a dead man. So, another point of application for us today as, as American citizens. What did Paul do here? He takes, his, he takes advantage of his rights as a citizen, as we ought to do as well. Amen? Take advantage of your rights. Whatever rights they are, let's take advantage of them. Let's be wise. You know, notice Paul didn't have a martyr complex. If you can escape, attack, escape. Amen? You know, it's quite another thing to put ourselves into a place where we can create for ourselves a martyr complex. And sometimes, as I said earlier, uh, these folks who, who purposely want to be provocative and go from church to church and they get kicked out of here, they get kicked out of here there, and the next church they go to, they go, yeah, everywhere I go, I've been kicked out because I'm such a, a fighter for truth. No, you're an irritant is what you are. And they have this martyr complex that they take on. You know, I've been rejected again. You know, all that produces, you know what that produces? Self-glory and sometimes self-pity. Another point of application is this. God's people need to be clever. What did Jesus say? Be wise as serpents. Gentle as doves, yes, but wise as serpents. As a matter of fact, Jesus goes so far as to say in a parable that he spoke in Luke chapter 16, he went on to say this, the sons of this world, unbelievers, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Meaning, unbelievers are often, unbelievers, outside of God's covenant of grace. Unbelievers are often wiser in the ways of the world than some believers are towards the things of God. That's his point. So Jesus goes on to say this. This is striking. Jesus goes on to say in Luke 16, 
Make friends for yourselves by means of your wealth to gain friends. Does that mean do anything illegal? No, of course not. It means be wise. Because when your wealth is gone, and eventually it will be gone, you will receive eternal rewards. What does he mean? Simply this, be strategic. Down here, while you live, be strategic. Use your resources for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, not to earn heaven. It's not to earn salvation. Use your earthly investments, as he'll go on to say, in order as as use for a means of eternal rewards, whatever that looks like. Because he goes on to say, he who is faithful in very little will be faithful in in much. So we need to be wise. So verse 30, um, the only recourse for the Romans at this point is to take Paul to the Jewish Sanhedrin, a tribune of his own people, so to speak, which is a very unusual move for, for these Roman soldiers. Very unusual move, but the, he, he doesn't know what to do. This guy tells him he's a Roman. We almost beat the guy. We almost scourged the guy. I'm out of my mind. I don't know what they're saying. I don't know what he said to them. I don't know what the upheaval is about. Let's take him back and put him in front of his people. Verse 1, chapter 23. Paul, looking intently now at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. In other words, friends, he's saying, I've been faithful to the God you proclaim. I'm a true Israelite, according to God's redemptive plan. I'm innocent. I have a good conscience. I don't teach Jewish believers to forsake the Mosaic law. I I, I didn't take a Gentile into the courts of the temple. That's what he was accused of, remember? Remember? I didn't do it. I'm innocent. I have a clear conscience. I'm a man whose sole purpose and determination is to live for the glory of God, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, he he, he claims to be blameless here. And he said, look, it's because I preach to Gentiles and bring blessings to Gentiles. That's really why I'm here. But I'm faithful to God's true Israelite. That's his argument. Friends, when when they had earlier thrown off their cloaks and thrown dust up, just imagine a bunch of grown men doing this. and throwing dust in the air. Silly. What that means is we have nothing to do with this man. That's what that means. We have nothing. We want him dead. He's better off dead. Paul says, but I'm innocent. And that's the issue again before us. Who is a true Israelite? So notice that this now results in a violent reaction by the command of the high priest. Verse 2, the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. That means just cuff him on the mouth. A severe personal insult more than anything else. You know, I'd rather get punched than backhanded. The backhand is an insult. When Jesus said when someone strikes you on the right cheek, well, the right cheek, you'd ha- you know, typically most people are right-handed, you'd have to be backhanded. That's an insult. 
He's insulted. He's ordered to be cuffed in the mouth. So rather than turning the other cheek here, Paul uses a prophetic curse against Ananias. We read about that prophetic curse in Ezekiel 13. Then Paul said to him, verse 3, God is going to strike you, you whitewash wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law? You ordered me to be struck, to be struck in the mouth. Now, we read Ezekiel 13, you know, a whitewashed wall. Um, you know, these are the prophets who say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And there's a wall that looks solid, but it's only smeared with whitewash. You get beneath the whitewash, and it's all crumbled. It's ready to fall. That's the idea, you whitewashed wall. You're a leader who proclaims this God. You proclaim Yahweh. You're a whitewashed wall. You say, peace, peace, there's no peace. You're accusing me? Verse 4. But the bystander said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, oh, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. Now, lots of possible answers have been given with regard to Paul's ignorance here. Some commentators say, well, we're pretty sure, you know, Paul had an eye problem, you know, Galatia. You see with what big letters I write, I write this portion with my own hand. They believe he had an eye problem. It's probably most likely that the council here gathered so quickly that the high priest didn't have time to, to put on all his regalia. You know, like the Pope in his pajamas with his crazy circus hat and his stick. <laughs> Things like that. They wore all this funny stuff. So he didn't even have time to do that. They, they gather so quickly, and Paul didn't recognize him as the high priest. That's probably, probably why I didn't recognize. But notice, friends, once he realizes he is the high priest, what does he do? Notice, oh, it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He quotes Exodus 22, verse 28. This brother knew the word inside and out. He didn't have to go, hold on a minute, let me see. Uh, let me. It's right there. And what does he do? He applies it to himself. You see this? And by the way, my friends, that principle, respect for leaders, has never been abrogated, by the way. We're called to speak respectfully to our leaders, my friends, honor has all but disappeared in our day. Witness? Amen. Positions of authority are, are not only assaulted by the world, unbelievers, but I hear it come out of the mouths of believers, people within the church. Friends, there are people in positions of power that are there because God has placed them according to his sovereignty and providence. And whether we disagree or not with those people, they are owed respect by way of virtue of the one who's placed them in that position, my friends. Amen? Amen. Period. Says the word of God. It's one thing for pagans to disrespect, let's say, the president of the United States. It's another when believers do it. We, we don't even refer to presidents nowadays as, as president. We use their name or their last name, or we tag them with some accusation. We mustn't do that. 
Because whether it's political, parental, educational, the church realm, God has ordered it this way. That's his doing. You know, I'll, I'll never forget a man who was in this church who dared to complain that his own wife and children were unsubmissive to him in the house. And he was one of the most unsubmissive men to church leadership I have ever met. And he was asked the question by one of our elders, have you ever considered where your children's risk disregard for authority was learned? Dad? Witness? Lesson. Paul, when confronted with Scripture, applies it to himself, the one who's claiming to honor God with a clear conscience. Point of application, when you, skin, when you sin and Scripture is brought to your mind by the Holy Spirit or by a brother and sister or your spouse, confess, repent, and what? Move on. Move on. This is the heart of the Christian life. Uh, admit your sins frequently, repent routinely, move on. There's no need to go flog yourself. Okay, when you sin, and let's say it's some grievous sin, and you're truly repentant, and you confess, is it over? It's over. Move on. You don't have to go sit in a dark closet and try to atone for something that Christ apparently didn't atone for. It's done. You're washed, you're cleansed, get up, move on. That's what he does. Admit it, own it, turn from it, carry on with your Christian life. Isn't that a blessing? That's the blood of Christ. Carry on. Teach our children that as well. Paul does it right here. Paul's confronted. He applies scripture to himself, he, he repents, and he carries on. Verse 6, so here's how he carries on. Hmm. Perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. Okay, friends, Paul knows exactly what he's doing here. He's about to cause a brawl to break out. He is wise as a serpent. He's so wise. Notice, I am a Pharisee. Well, what does that mean? I thought he was a Pharisee, past tense. Well, in terms of context, and everything is context, amen? Everything is context. So here, he says, look, I'm a Pharisee. In other words, I affirm the resurrection from the dead as the Pharisaic office held to. They believed in the, in the resurrection of the dead. They believe the scriptures. Notice verse 6b. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. So what is Paul doing mentioning the resurrection here? Well, of course, he's preaching the gospel, but he's also doing something else. Paul knows very well about warfare and politics. And here, it's divide and conquer. Let's set my enemies against themselves. This is what he's about to do. So he divides the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin were made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Sadducees, uh-uh. As a matter of fact, the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the, the, the books of Moses. The rest of the Old Testament, they didn't believe. Only the first five books. 
Notice verse 7. He said, he said this, when he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Remember how the Sadducees came to Jesus, Mark chapter 12, Mark 12, I think it was? They came to Jesus, they tried to set him up, they interrogate him about the resurrection that they didn't believe in. Do you remember that? So he said, they said, you know what happens when a man dies and he's had five wives, you know, in the resurrection, who's his wife? And Jesus goes on to say, they're not given in marriage in heaven and all that, they're like the angels and so on. So their fundamental argument, the Sadducees, was that Moses, remember they only believed in the first, first five, five books, their, their assumption was that there is no specific place in the Pentateuch, Pentateuch that teaches about resurrection. But oh, they were wrong. Jesus said this. Okay, when these so-called scholars come to him, he said this. Um, you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. Yeah, this is Mark chapter 12. Have you not read in the book of Moses? In the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the what? Living. You are greatly mistaken, he said. Brilliant. Brilliant. See, Paul knows this. He knows this about his Lord. He's wise as a serpent, so he gets his common enemy now to turn on each other. Be wise as a serpent. Verse 9, and there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes and Pharisees and the Pharisaic party stood up, and they began to argue heatedly, saying, we find, <laughs> look at this, we find nothing wrong with this man. <laughs> the guy, yeah, we were just trying to kill him. Yeah, we find nothing wrong with him. Um, suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. So things turn violent. Think they're really going at it at this point. This isn't a mere verbal commotion, but we read there's discord, there's shouting, there's violence. Verse 10, a great dissension was developing. So the whole Jewish court, they're fighting amongst themselves here about this one Paul, who they accused him of not being a true Jew, not being an Israelite. He talks about the resurrection. Paul's in the middle of it all. The chief captain by this time, he's got to be beside himself, this poor guy. He's trying to get to the bottom of this thing. He can't, so there's another uproar. So verse 10, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down, take him away from them by force, and bring him into the barracks. Again, providential Roman protection. Verse 11, but on the night immediately following, okay, here again, persecution. He's innocent. He's preaching Christ. All I want is for people to know my Lord Jesus Christ. And he's arrested again. Notice, on the, on the night immediately following, the Lord stood by him and said, this is beautiful, take courage, Paul, take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to, to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Notice, the Lord does not use cliches. But what do we hear in our day? The Lord will never give you more than you can handle. 
Sorry. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. I've been through things lately I couldn't handle. Where did I go? The throne of grace. What does he say? He assures me, my grace is sufficient. You're right. You can't handle this. I can. I'll handle it through you. Amen? No Christian, no, no cliches. No cliches that aren't biblical. My, I have a Christian friend. I love this brother so much. He goes, Johnny, I, I just want to thank you for not Jesus juking me all the time. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, I have friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. They always take some text out of context and apply it to some part of our conversation. You understand what I'm saying? You know, they want to go do something in life, and they have no business doing that particular thing, so what do they slap on there? Well, the scripture says I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. (laughs) You can't climb Mount Everest in T-shirt, shorts, and tennis shoes. That's foolish. You can't do all things through Christ. That applies to suffering, by the way, Paul said. I'm suffering. I'm in chains for the sake of Christ, for his name. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? Let's not Jesus juke one another. Let's just be real. Amen? Apply the scriptures properly in context. Context, context, context. So he says, take courage because this is going to continue. This is going to continue. Paul needs this encouragement because who's he up against at this point? He's up against Israel who are saying, you're not an Israelite, therefore you must die. That's what this whole thing is about right here. In here... The true Israel of God, Jesus, the resurrected Son of God, the resurrection and the life says, take courage, my son. Take courage, Paul. As you've witnessed about me here, you will witness about me also in Rome. I'll get you there. You'll carry on with the mission. Okay, to close, who is is Christ's witness The witness of the Lord Jesus Christ right here, the Apostle Paul, is a man who at one point in time was only a Jew outwardly, ethnically. Romans 2.28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. What did Christ do? Through the transformation, he made him a true Jew. He made him a true Israelite. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision, Paul goes on to write, is a matter of the what? Heart. That's the sign of the covenant. Sign of the covenant is a circumcised heart, a new heart by the regenerating work of God the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit, not by the letter, he goes on to say, his praise is not from man, but from God, Romans 2.29. This is all about what God is going to do to glorify his name. What does he do? He takes the worst. God takes the worst, and I speak in relative terms, a persecutor of the way, a persecutor of the church, a hater of Christ, and he transforms him according to sovereign grace. And then a God who is just takes the best, and now I speak in absolute terms, he takes the best, his only beloved son, and makes him the worst. He makes him a curse 
to make Paul a new creature in Christ. That's what this is all about. He who became a curse in order to set sinners free, the best exchanged for the worst. Christ was exchanged for you. You're the worst. I'm the worst. He's the best. Now we're in him, the true Israel of God. So he makes this former persecutor of Christ the best in Christ, granting him the forgiveness of sins, and he grants you, by way of his resurrection, his very righteousness. You're declared free from all blame. You're as righteous as Christ in the eyes of God, amen. That's the great exchange. That's what the table is all about. He made him, he made him who knew no sin to become sin. He became sin so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He died for your sin. He died for your guilt. He was raised for your justification. And once again, as I opened this morning, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. I said that yesterday to a group of pagans, some believers, at a funeral right here. If Christ hasn't raised from the dead, I'm in my sins. I'm the biggest fool for declaring him here this afternoon. I said yesterday. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, 1 Corinthians 15. Colossians 3, he said this. If then you have been raised with Christ, which you have, amen, we have, Therefore, seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he who says to you, as he did Paul, as you testify about me, I will be with you. He's with you now, and he'll be with you to the end. Declare his name for his glory. He's with you. Amen? Lord, we do thank you that you're with us. We do thank you that you bought us. So we come to the table now, given to us through your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we may partake in remembrance of him, that we might remember the new covenant within us, ever before us, that is fulfilled through him and him alone, that we now partake of him, commemorating, remembering, participating, in the death, in the shed blood of your Son, our Lord. Help us to do so by faith. Increase our faith today as we partake. In Jesus' name, amen.